This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, we are really excited today that we have Mohan Guridaradas, the founder and CEO of Lean Toss. First of all, thank you so much, Mohan, for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about Lean Toss? Terrific. Thank you, Skip. Thank you, Dr. Lancaster. Uh, I'm Mohan Girdardas. I'm the founder and CEO of LeanTAS. Uh, prior to starting LeanTAS, I was at McKinsey for 18 years, and I led the lean manufacturing practice and the lean service operations practice, both in the United States and across the Asia-Pacific region. I started LeanTAS with the vision of being able to apply lean transformation thinking, but upgrading the quality of the math to be sophisticated data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, simulation, optimization, et cetera, and delivering it over a SaaS platform. And so that was the vision of Lenta. So we're a prescriptive analytics company. The one line on what we do is we embed crazy math, deep data science, uh, operational excellence thinking into web-based software tools that unlock capacity. Unlocking capacity is magic. Health systems operate at the edge of capacity. And any system at the edge of capacity is susceptible to falling into gridlock. Think of the freeways at rush hour. At rush hour, the freeways at the edge of capacity. It doesn't take much to go into gridlock. And that's what we've seen happen to health systems. And that's what we do. We work with 450 hospitals around the country, which is about 125 or so health systems. Um, We are in 42 of the 50 states. And we have three flagship products, infusion center optimization, operating rooms optimization and inpatient beds optimization. And collectively, we are about 300 people and have raised and deployed over $250 million. These are hard problems to solve. It takes expertise, resources, people, et cetera, to, to do it. Well, well, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I think all of us recognize uh, the problem that, that your company is trying to solve. Um, you know, most of us have dealt with that gridlock within our hospitals. Uh, but I am curious, how did you decide to gear your product towards healthcare? What made you interested in solving it in that particular industry? Well, when we started the company, we were a general purpose analytics company. So as you can imagine with Toyota and lean expertise uh, uh, sort of thinking, it could apply to many industries. So for the first five years, we were actually a general purpose analytics platform. Our customers were in seven or eight different industries. Google was a customer, Flextronics, Clorox, Home Depot, uh, and so on. In every case, what we were building was the ability to ingest vast amounts of data, apply sophisticated optimization algorithms to improve the operational performance, and put out prescriptive recommendations, not just dashboards. Dashboards admire the problem. They don't solve the problem. To put out prescriptive recommendations. One of the problems we happened to solve completely by accident was infusion center optimization. The head of cancer at Stanford came to us and said, You guys know lean, you guys know math, you guys know data science and software. My infusion center looks like a ghost town in the morning, but it's a train station in the middle of the day. Can you guys help us solve it? And we said, huh, interesting, good problem. We spent six months and we cracked it. And we cracked it, we realized how difficult it was. You would think infusion's easy. Someone sits in a chair, you hang a pump and, uh, and, and medicine and give it to them. It was a hard problem. And when we cracked it, we said, every infusion center in the world has this problem and we should optimize around it. We shed everything else and pivoted the company in 2015 to be 100% healthcare analytics. And thereafter ended up building 
our operating rooms product and our beds product. Every few years, we build a new product. So yeah, you mentioned every hospital in the, in the country probably has that the same problem with the infusion center, and, and it's been going on for you know for years, decades, or more. Um, why don't more hospitals, more healthcare systems, invest in trying to solve these problems? I mean, we we all know the capacity issues. We all know the issues with with surgery, but it seems like we just kind of continue about our day and right. and deal with it. Yes. Uh, that's a great point, Dr. Lacan. So if I think about the United States, the increase in the clinical sophistication of healthcare in this country has been nothing short of remarkable. The stuff surgeons and clinicians can do today compared to what they could do five years ago, 10 years ago, is just astounding. Meanwhile, the operational sophistication of healthcare has barely moved. Some of it is because digitization is only 10 years old. So the data has moved from paper charts to digital data in the last 10, 15 years. UPS and Delta Airlines started 80 years ago. 70 years ago, they were not sophisticated either. They built up over the last 20, 30 years of electronic records in transportation, et cetera. And so healthcare hasn't quite done that. It is also a deceptively hard problem to solve. And healthcare just has not invested the time in it, which is why it's a unique window for us. So if you think about why now, well, Uber and Instagram and Facebook couldn't have existed if Steve Jobs hadn't taught the world that you can have a phone in your pocket that has the internet in your hand, right? Absent that, Uber doesn't work. You can't be booking a car on your laptop in your office and then run around trying to find the car on the street, right? It counts on that. So for us, the window of time of web-based access, all the data digitized, democratization of data science has enabled this to come together. And that's why we exist today and we couldn't have existed 20 years ago. And so you mentioned that it, it took you about six months to solve the infusion center problem um, and that it was a hard problem. Can you tell, tell us just a little bit about what makes it such a hard problem? So think about the supply side. What does it take to deliver an infusion? You need the pump, the chair, the drugs, and the nurse. If any one of them is out, the nurse is sick, the pump is broken, the chair is dirty, or the drugs are delayed in formulation, the infusion cannot happen. So you've got four interconnected supply elements that are hard to predict and are volatile. On the demand side, on any given day, the number of patients who will need infusion is a hard problem to predict. Different oncologists practice on different days of the week. They have different practice patterns. A different percent of them need infusion. Infusion is a six to eight week regimen which means that any given day, 20 to 25% of your patients are either on their first chemo dose or their last chemo dose. The duration of the treatment changes based on the condition of the patient, whether they show up on time changes. So the demand vector is hard to predict. So you've got a moving, wobbly, hard to predict demand signal with a interconnected, constrained, hard to predict supply signal, and you need to make them match minute for minute. And what do health systems do? They look at the calendar and say, skip Wednesday at 10 o'clock. Nobody ran demand side math. Nobody ran supply constrained optimization algorithms. What could possibly go wrong? Of course it goes wrong every single day. So yes, it took us six months to crack the problem the first time. We have spent $50 million on this problem. We've worked on it for six years. We've got a 70 person team doing nothing more than, nothing other than infusion schedule optimization. No single health system can make that investment. It makes no sense. There is even a system with the resources of Baptist would not spend $50 million solving infusion scheduling. We will, 
because we will have it running in 10,000 infusion centers over the next 10 years, and it makes all the sense in the world for us to invest. So let me ask a question. This is really, really fascinating. So let's kind of shift a little bit to the OR, and we can come back to the infusion if we need to, but let's go to the OR, and what's coming to the top of my head right now is not the math, not the technical, but across the nation, you have many surgeons that don't actually work for the hospital. How do you bridge the social element? Uh, I mean, the technical element you got, and, and you may be able to prove it to the, the final degree of the math. How do you bridge the, the social element uh, to show them that it's to their benefit sure. to, to get on board? Well, we call these splitter surgeons, right? And you guys probably call it the splitter surgeons are the ones who have the right to operate in your facilities, but have the right to take their business and operate in somebody else's hospital. Well, you've got to make it easy for them. If it's easiest to book a surgery in your hospital, surgeons and their service teams will do that. Let me ask you a question. When you need to go out for dinner with your friends, do you book a restaurant that is on open table? Or do you go through the yellow pages to find an Italian restaurant where you want to go? Right? Yeah, right, exactly. You want to go where it is the easiest. So our math is robust and makes it possible to pull off. Right? And so think about how back to what could possibly go wrong when you say skip Wednesday, 10 o'clock on the infusion side. Let me tell you how the OR scheduling, as you guys well know. Blocks are allocated to surgeons and service lines based on political power and on average utilization. That's it. That's the level of math sophistication that went into it. Now, utilization is completely flawed thinking. Why? Because it's averaging math, right? If my head's in the freezer and my feet are in the oven, on average, I'm at a comfortable body temperature. That is not a comfortable place to be. So if... Uh, if Dr. Lancaster has 67% utilization and I have 67% utilization, they will treat me equally from a block committee standpoint. That is nonsense because Dr. Lancaster is a neurosurgeon. Every one of his surgeries is a jump ball. It could be one hour, it could be seven hours. I'm a sports orthopedic surgeon. I do cookie cutters, knees and elbows all day long, right? Every surgery of mine is 90 minutes and I can set on my watch based on that. So if we both have 67% utilization, you could take away one-fifth of my blocks and not hurt my practice. You cannot take away one of Dr. Lancaster's blocks without destroying his practice because he cannot possibly predict uh, how long it's going to take. So utilization math is a foolish way of allocating it. So what happens now, if I just painted the extreme, we've got a $15 million room, an operating theater with the best equipment, sitting on top of expensive real estate in downtown locations, uh, wherever you are. It's being scheduled like the tennis court at your gym with rules that say the senior most pro gets the slot he wants and the longest standing member gets the slot she wants. That's the rules of how ORs are allocated. They deserve to be allocated the way space shuttle flights are scheduled. It's that complicated, right? And so that's why uh, our math solves this problem. So, so going back to Skip's point about some of the social and, and personal aspects of, of this problem, you know, some surgeons will, will show up, you know, routinely 30 minutes late to the operation. You know, uh, and you know, the as a patient, the nurse will tell you that she's like, yeah, your your oh your time for your surgery is this, but it's really going to be this. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't exist anywhere in the data. Um, no, it does because uh, well, first case the case delay starts right. We know wheels into wheels out. We know first cut to close, so we know all the times. 
Okay, so so when you're doing this optimization, are you doing it down to the surgeon level, or are you doing it? Okay, so you know based you know on surgeon. You know okay. Let me get, let me push it one step further on the social thing. Surgeons are competitive, and surgeons are data driven. And surgeons don't like the randomness of allocation math and getting dinged for first case delays when it wasn't their fault. The surgeon who shows up 30 minutes late knows he's to blame or she is to blame. The surgeon who gets dinged for case delays when it was the anesthesiologist who's late gets pissed off when you show them their, uh, their utilization with delays, right? So we know all of that. What we find is because we've gone to a different methodology than this average silliness of utilization, we've patented a concept called collectible time where we tell the surgeon, look, we don't care about your first case delays. We don't care about your turnover time. Those are potentially not your fault. What we do care about is if you leave large contiguous chunks of time on the table, right? Like you leave a three hour block in the middle of your day that you don't operate. You had the block for the whole day and you wasted three hours. We care about if you release most of your blocks. Imagine you give me two blocks a week and like clockwork, I release one of the blocks every time, but I release it well enough in advance that I don't get dinged on utilization. You know, you could take away one of my blocks, and which is 50% of my blocks, and not hurt my practice. So we care about abandoned blocks, large contiguous chunks of time, and we care about excessive releases above a certain threshold. Our algorithms are smart enough to analyze the time stamps, analyze the patterns of surgeons and when they book. So if you tend to fill your block six weeks in advance, and you have a block three weeks from now that's still empty, we will automatically at scale send you a text message. It says, Dr. Lancaster, you usually fill your blocks six weeks in advance. We see you've got a block three weeks from now that's empty. You want to put a case on it or should we release it? And you know what? It's just like the dentist reminder. When you get reminded and you commit to going, you don't blow it off. And so you look at it and say, oh yeah, I meant to release it. I'm going to be out of town. You release it. That creates a liquid marketplace, which becomes our open table for open time. So surgeons release their time. And they love the fact that when they suddenly have a case that's outside of their block time that they need to schedule, the marketplace is open. So what the current methods and hospitals have done is they've created this aura of scarcity that doesn't exist. Okay, So just like before a hurricane, the grocery stores run out of milk. Why? People didn't up their milk consumption. Why did it run out of milk? It's 10,000 people in the same zip code decided they needed a gallon of milk in their fridge at the same time. That's why they run out. So when you perceive scarcity, you hoard. Surgeons perceive scarcity in the block time, so they hoard. Even if they know they're gonna be out of town, they kind of hang on and wait till the epic auto release takes it away from them, right? When they realize that no, if I give back when I don't need, it'll be there when I need it, it becomes like daily operations in the grocery store. The grocery store could tell you, guys, we're open 24 seven through the hurricane. We won't run out of any product, relax. You know what? We won't have the, the milk run effect. Uh, that happens. So tell us, I guess, a little bit about your outcomes. How does your process of, of allocation compare to the, the spreadsheet, the typical, I guess, OR way of, of booking? We right now run 2,200 ORs across the country, 45 uh, health systems. We've run, we run rigorous studies of all systems that have been on our product for over a year, the before and after. Consistently, we lift staff room utilization by five to six points consistently, regardless of the starting point. The median- What does that mean? You increase percentage points? Yeah, by five to six percentage points, right? So a system that was at 70% utilization will go to 75 or 76. Now, uh, there is some correlation with starting performance, but 
the median regardless of starting performance. So even high-performing systems like OHSU and Duke uh, and uh, Dignity have moved uh, significantly. What that does is it enables more surgeries to be completed during prime time hours. The issue is if I walk around your hospital today, it's the middle of the working day, I bet there are two or three rooms that are empty. Yet, if I walk through it at nine o'clock at night, I bet there'll be two or three surgeries going on, right? So why is it that we couldn't get it through? About 30% of your surgeries that are happening today are being led by a surgeon who was not the original block owner of the blocks today, 30%, which means somebody did cattle trading and horse trading and swapping of blocks offline, right? And 20% of your surgeries today would have been classified as add-on or emergent, meaning they got added onto the grid in the last 48 hours, even though they are elective surgeries that had no business being added on at the last minute. Why somebody jumped in and said, hey, your slot opened up. You think you can get yourself in here tomorrow for surgery? And that's how it got added onto the grid. Those are symptoms of an allocation system that's broken and an operational system that's broken. So you mentioned moving up five or six percentage points for utilization. What does that mean, I guess, to the, the bottom line of an organization revenue-wise? In terms of the gross number, it is on the order of $500,000 per OR per year. In terms of a net number, it might be more like $200,000 per OR per year. So a facility with 40 ORs could see an impact of $20 million per year. Dignity has presented at a conference uh, and demonstrated how many tens of millions of dollars they unlocked through it. We are so confident in the product that we guarantee it. We are probably mm-hmm. the only software vendor in the health system, in the healthcare system ecosystem that says, for 19 days after the go live, if you say, yeah, I don't see it or I don't like it, we'll refund every nickel you've paid us. And we don't confuse customers with hostages. We say, you should be able to cancel your product whenever you want. Unlike my Xfinity home monitoring, I can't get out till August 2023. And every month I write them a $50 check and I curse them because, uh, you know, I can't get out. So they might think they've got a perfectly happy customer. I can't wait till the end date of the contract to get out. Uh, We believe our products and our team need to earn your business every single day. If any day you wake up unhappy, you should have the right to get out. Just like Netflix, you can stop seeing the movies and cancel your subscription whenever you want. That's how we view it. It keeps our teams focused and it keeps our customers confident. Wow. I love that. Love that concept. Love that idea. So let me ask a question that I'm pretty confident that Dr. Lancaster could ask it much better than me, but I'm going to take a stab at it. You know, um, I have friends that work at Amazon and and just just basic reading. One of the things that's fascinating to me is how the Amazons, the Googles of the world behind the scenes, if you pull the curtains back, are constantly trying to uh, improve, apply their own line of thinking to uh, to their own algorithms, to their own AI, to their own. How does how do you all think about that? Because uh, you obviously have something special here. I've heard great things across the nation about your product. Uh, how do you if you pull the curtains back, how do you think about applying that same thinking to your to your actual product? So our Every one of the products we have does the optimization and continuously learns with AI and machine learning. So let me go one by one. So with Infusion, we built algorithms that do the demand supply matching. From that, we create an optimal template. So we advise each health system how to schedule every minute of every day. We say on Mondays, offer up your two-hour appointments 
at 8, 10, 9, 20, 10, 40, 11, 30, and so on. Those templates get baked back into the EHR. Then we predicted how the day was going to go. At the end of the day, we know how the day actually went. And so we compare and learn and say, was that a one-off miss? Or is it systemic that your Wednesday mid-mornings are going badly because you've got a new oncologist who uh, is generating more volume or you've got one fewer nurse or whatever? When that drift happens between expected and actual, our algorithms tweak the templates and come back to you. And that learning is continuous. So just like the Nest thermostat learns how you like to live in which rooms you like heated at what time of the day, and it gets smarter and smarter at learning to live with you, uh, our algorithms and templates learn how to be better and better for you. Similarly, in the operating room, we know how the blocks should have gone and we know how they went. And when there's a deviation between them, we will come back and suggest how you might think about reallocating blocks. Take away one block from Dr. Stewart on Tuesdays and give Dr. Lancaster an extra block on Wednesdays. That's what that would get you closer. Our algorithms learn. Epic does a blunt instrument case length estimation. We are much more sophisticated. We will categorize two level spines versus four level spines and so on. And so our case length estimator is more sophisticated. And therefore, we will know the doc who's chronically 30 minutes late and therefore will, will they want to do a spine procedure and they say 90 minutes, we know it should be two and a half hours. So we will you know, block it that way. So our case length estimator learns too. Our booking patterns learn as well. So we understand. So think about this at scale. Every day for every surgeon, we look at every block they have into the future and put in the probability that they will not use their block well and automatically send them text messages when they cross a threshold. So we're not spamming and bugging them. We're sending just the dental remind, appointment reminder to the right surgeon at the right time. Those are the ways in which our algorithms learn. So think about inpatient beds. Inpatient beds are like a hospital, uh, like a hotel room that had unfortunate characteristics, right? We all check into a hotel only at four. They won't let you check in earlier. And we are kicked out at noon. So they have the whole afternoon to clean up and be ready. What happens to an inpatient bed in a hospital? The demand pattern starts early in the morning with surgeries. The departure pattern doesn't start until late afternoon when people are being discharged. So there's this inverted curve of arrivals versus departures that forces patients to be backed up in the ED, boarded in the PACU, boarded in the surgery room, or hanging out in hallways waiting for a bed. And like Groundhog Day, this happens again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. There is a method to the madness. You can predict arrival and departure patterns by unit. So we built 24 mathematical models for every unit in the, every hospital, for that hospital, one for each hour of the day. And because we built these sophisticated models that learn and get augmented by real time, we are able to predict where your bottlenecks are going to happen. Think about how every hospital in this country runs their capacity meeting. People get together and they do counting stones level of arithmetic, where I report to Dr. Lancaster, I've got a 24 bed unit, 22 are occupied, I'm expecting five to come in, I'm expecting three to go out, so I'm gonna to be too short. That's, that's what I report. And we go unit by unit, count the stones in every unit, and then operate on that. That makes no sense. You can get on ways today and say, I'm gonna be driving from JFK to New Jersey at 6 p.m., six Thursdays from now, how long, how long will it take me? And it predicts it accurately. It has no idea who's going to be on the road at that time. How does it do that? Because it's built a mathematical model for every inch of roadway for every minute of every day of the week. And it augments it with real-time cell phone velocities to know what's happening. 
that's what we do. We built a mathematical model for every unit for every hour of the day, and we augmented with real-time HL7 feeds. So I don't care about the clinical condition of Joe Blow in bed three. I'm not trying to outdock your doc by saying, oh yeah, he's got a comorbidity with diabetes. He's going to be longer in bed. That's trying to be a better doc than Dr. Lancaster. And I can't do that. So what we can do is operationally tell you, you know, what needs to happen. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and yeah, especially the, the bed capacity issues over the last two years have been you know, obviously all over the news. Um, and, you know, because at one point, you know, for us at least, we had 60 to 70 percent of the patients in our ICU were, were COVID-19 patients at, at least a few of our hospitals and, you know, close to close to 20 percent of all med, med surge patients. And, you know, one of our biggest issues is um, these patients will stay a long time, but yep. also a lot of them are debilitated, will need to go to a skilled rehab facility. And uh, on the weekends, we a lot of times can't get them to a skilled rehab facility because they don't accept patients on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, combat about the nursing staff shortage and, and others. You know, there's reports of, um, you know, on occasion, you know, a patient may actually be out of the building, but they show up in the system as still being there because uh, the nurses are so over um, overdriven right. right now that, if they they discharge the person the patient actually physically but don't enter put in the the, system, yeah. don't put it in the system then they get a little bit of a break so you know capacity issues are, are obviously going to continue for a while but I would I would love to understand a little bit more about how your system kind of combats some of those issues right so what we do is um, we we take each unit as I said and we built a mathematical model for every hour of the day so we can predict for each unit what the incoming and outgoing is going to be hour for hour. And so at the start of the morning, the, the huddle meeting transforms from this stone counting exercise to looking unit for unit and predicting where we're going to have shortfalls. Should we open up a surge unit? When should we open up a surge unit? So that starts the day off right. Where we predict a shortfall is going to happen, it focuses the discharge and the case management team to focus on the right patients in the right unit instead of peanut butter spreading it across the case management people saying, I've got 20 patients to deal with. No, but only three of them matter. Get them out first, and then worry about the other 17 because that's where the discharge is going to happen. Right? But I need it. We pr internal transfers for low acuity patients are the bottom of the to-do list that never get done, right? But we can say, listen, this patient wants to move from unit A to unit B. Two hours from now, you're going to have a shortfall in unit A. It's in your enlightened self-interest to make that transfer happen. It's good for you if you make it happen, right? So we allow those things to happen. So think of this as letting your frontline make more intelligent decisions and play a better game, right? Your patient placement people are playing whack-a-mole. They see a bed, they see a patient, they put the patient in the bed. Hopefully it's in the right standard of care, but with bad luck, it's in you know the secondary service. We transform that whack-a-mole game into grandmaster chess. We allow them to play three, four moves ahead. We say, listen, don't put skip in this bed. Skip should be in unit B and unit B, a bed's going to open up in 45 minutes. Hang in there. Put skip in the right bed 45 minutes from now. You know what? 20 to 30 percent of your patients on any given day are placed in the wrong unit. If you had your brothers, you'd have put them somewhere else. Imagine if you cut that down by a third. Your outcomes will be better. Your LOSs will be better. Our tool allows cohort groups to be created. So when you dynamically want to designate units as COVID-specific units or not, we allow that to happen. So the models can be sophisticated and adaptive in that matter as well. And, you know, so obviously we're trying to open up as much beds as possible or, or, or at least have the capacity 
but but how do you measure the success of your program versus the traditional? Uh, what is the the delta that you're that you're showcasing? So we showcase several metrics. One is the speed of executing ICU uh, admits, right? We can take it down by 30 to 40%. Second, the speed of patient placement. University of Colorado Health, the volume went up by 18%, and we still reduced the time to put a patient in a bed by 4%. Now, 4% doesn't sound like a lot, but imagine if I told you during rush hour, on a day when the football game released from the stadium, downtown during rush hour, your commute was still 4% shorter, even though 18% more cars came on the freeway during rush hour. That would be impressive because you'd have expected your commute to be 40% worse because the football game let out. So that's how we think about it. And the single metric that drives ROI is excess bed nights. Hospitals have a significant number of bed nights that don't get compensated back or reimbursed. Why? Because the patient is supposed to be in for three nights you ended up with a fourth night with that patient. And so you know, the insurance pays you back for three, not four. We cut that down by seven to 8%, which is millions of dollars. So what we've done is that alone pays the ROI five to six times. Everything else is icing on the cake. Because if we try to prove the ROI by saying your nurses don't waste time counting stones because they've got the information, great, it doesn't change your cost. You're not going to have fewer nurses. They're not going to do anything different. And so those all become vitamins and not painkillers. We've got to deliver a painkiller. And the painkiller we deliver is reducing your excess bed nights, speeding your time to place in a bed, and speeding your time into the ICU. If you can see those three metrics straight up and couple that with our guaranteed money back and cancel anytime policy, it makes it a no-brainer. Well, uh, Mohan, this, this has been really, I could actually, I could hang out for several more hours. I don't think you would give me several more hours. But, I'll give you as much time as you want, Skip. <laughs> but, but, what, but what's really amazing is I can foresee, and I don't know this like you do, but I can see this technology, how it could be leveraged in so many areas in healthcare. Uh, because, and I could even see all the what if analogies that you could do. You know, right now we run uh, ORs. Uh, in a certain way, meaning that a lot of times we don't utilize weekends. There's a lot of time. There's so many opportunities in ORs that it's basically uh, assets that are collecting yes. dust. Yes. You know? And so I just see so many opportunities. We're really excited about getting ready to start this experiment with your company, uh, one of our entities. And so thank you so much for your taking time away from your really busy day. Uh, Really appreciate everything you're doing in this space. And just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I just want to say a really big thank you and uh, just keep on doing the great work that you're doing. I appreciate it. I've got an amazing team that just does magic. It's uh, when you think about the complexity of what we're building, it literally takes mathematicians, data scientists, engineers, designers, QA. It just it takes an enormous, diverse set of highly talented people to put it together. And I'm just privileged to lead such an amazing team. So I, I love what we're doing. And thank you for the opportunity, both for the podcast and to work with Baptist. We're looking forward to hitting the ball out of the park uh, with you guys. Fantastic. Thank, thank you so much. Bye, guys.